Hello and welcome to the Australia Indonesia Centre and this discussion about a career in science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM. I'm Helen Fletcher Kennedy and I'm the COO of the Australia Indonesia Centre and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners, the people of the Kulin Nation on which this centre's Melbourne office is located and where the modern city of Melbourne is located and from where we're hosting today's webinar. I'd also like to acknowledge the Noongar people and the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land where two of our panellists are joining from today, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. The Australia Indonesia Centre is presenting this as part of Monash University's Indonesia Talks series. The topic we've chosen also relates to the Centre's commitment to supporting and promoting women in the fields of science research, technology and mathematics. Because the world will become smarter, faster, only when we draw upon the diverse talents of the whole population. The chat function is on, so please ask questions. And now I'm going to introduce our five panellists for today. Valerina Daniel, is our first panellist. Welcome, Valerina. Valerina Daniel is a journalist and news anchor at Burita Satu, an environmental activist and a children's book author. She also serves as advisor to the Minister of Tourism and the Minister of Environment. Our second panellist is Prerana Mehta. Prerana Mehta currently serves as Chief of Ecosystem Development at Ost Cyber, as well as being the ACT Chair of the Australia-Indonesia Business Council, AIBC. Welcome, Pirana. Our third panellist is Professor Anu Romohan. Anu is an Australia-Indonesia Centre Senior Fellow and she is Professor of Economics and Associate Dean International for the Faculty of Arts, Business, Law and Education at the University of Western Australia. Welcome, Anu. Thank you. Our fourth panellist is Dr. Hasnawati Saleh, or Nana. Nana is a founding member of the Indonesian Young Academy of Sciences, and she also served as Study Director for the Indonesian Academy of Sciences. Nana is currently the research coordinator for the Partnership for Australia-Indonesia Research. Hi, Nana. Welcome. Hi. Selamat pagi. Good morning. Pagi. And finally, our fifth panellist is Helen Brown. Helen is a former ABC journalist and Indonesia correspondent. She was the Centre's inaugural fellow for digital economy, and she's also the founder of Business Asia Startup. Welcome, Helen. Hello. So now we're going to go to our questions and my first question is going to be to Pirana. Pirana, your field is cybersecurity. The proportion of women is around 11 or 12%. How difficult is it to convince young women to study and to work in this field? Hi, everyone. Thank you, Helen, for the question. It's really great to be here. Um, yeah, look, 11 or 12% isn't a great stat, that's for sure. Um, thankfully, that's actually a global stat, so it's not that we're doing particularly bad here in Australia. Um, it's just not an area that a lot of women have actually entered into, and we're doing whatever we can to be able to bring women into mathematics, education, sorry, engineering um, and data sciences to be able to join cybersecurity. So in Australia, you're right, it's about 11 or 12%. Um, that's been increasing, um, I think, little by little over the last few years. And certainly, I think over the last 12 months, we've seen a greater understanding and recognition of cybersecurity. And that certainly brought in a little bit more interest from, from girls um, in school. And certainly, we've seen a lot more females enrolling in universities as well, which is fantastic. The other thing that the universities are doing is that they're actually trying to make cybersecurity part of the core curricula across multiple faculties. So you don't have to be doing engineering or science to do 
um, cybersecurity, you can actually just be doing a business or an arts degree and also do a couple of subjects in cybersecurity. And that's fantastic because what we're hoping is that that then kind of um, provides that little bit of an incentive and interest for girls to join STEM and join cyber. Um, look, I'm going to talk just a little bit about the background of cyber and why it's traditionally been male-dominated. So cybersecurity about 20 years ago or so, so cyber's not new, but when um, it was around 20 years ago, it was actually quite a defence-oriented field. And that's why it's been quite heavily male-dominated. But what's been recognised now is that cybersecurity is about problem-solving. And to solve problems, you actually need diversity and you need uh, women to be able to come to the table with both technical, so those zeros and ones and data kind of skills that you really need, um, as well as non-technical skills. So you actually need business skills to be able to communicate with corporates and government um, about what some of those issues are and how, and how cybersecurity might be able to solve them. So really what we're seeing is... Um, I guess, greater, uh, greater opportunity for women to join cybersecurity, not just in technical areas, but also in the non-technical areas. Um, I hope that's answered your question, Helen. Great. Thank you, Piranha. Yeah, ex excellent and, um, and quite interesting developments for, for young women in, in the area. So now I'd like to go to uh, you, Nana, and uh, ask you, what are some of the challenges in your pursuit of becoming a scientist that you've faced? Thank you, Helen. Very interesting question. Um, I guess um, I I did my undergraduate uh, in Indonesia and moved to Australia for postgraduate studies. And I was a young mother then. I had a baby. I just delivered a baby, and I have to commence my study in Australia. I have to leave my baby with my parents-in-law, and um, they joined me four months later. My husband came with a baby, eight months years, eight months old. So. And what I'm trying to say is um, for women to pursue, especially those mothers who, who pursue career outside home, you need immediate support for your part, from your partner and also your family. And um, I was working as a research, as a research student in a lab and that often required demanding time, like I have to work odd hours or odd time. And uh, having a baby certainly is, is uh, another challenge. So I was, I have to acknowledge the support from the university who provided, who granted my request to, to have a, a, to rent a flat near our, uh, our lab. So I just can walk, travel easily between home and, and, uh, uh, and the lab. And uh, the second challenge that I face is actually when I transition uh, uh, from Australia back to Indonesia, uh, having spent 10 years in Australia studying and working a very well set up lab, international standard, and moving to a, a, a less developed uh, world, uh, uh, where the research infrastructure is actually less developed. So that's another challenge. And to face those challenges, you need know, support uh, from your immediate surroundings, not only female, uh, males, but also females and your men. And, and it's, it's a great to have mentor in this to, to face those kind of barriers. Helen? Thank you, Nana. Thank you. Um, wow, um, quite a juggling act that you've, you've pulled off there with a young baby and uh, a yeah. PhD in biomedicine. So well done. I'll, I'll go to you now, Anu, um, and just wondering if you want to add to that as someone that is working in uh, a male-dominated field also, what two or three pieces of advice would you give to young women looking to enter that kind of a field now? Thank you, Helen, and um, morning, everyone. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is that women need to be self-confident and a little bit more assertive. Um, I often find that women are filled with self-doubt, and it's observed anecdotally that when women apply for promotions, they do that when they're absolutely certain that they will get promoted. And men don't wait. They apply when they're almost ready. So what this means is that women then feel discouraged. So the first thing I want to say is that women need to grasp the opportunities that they get and take it with, you know, and take actions to um, pursue that. And um, the second one is that 
it's true that male-dominated fields may seem a bit off-putting for women because they don't see as many role models, female role models. So uh, just building on what Nana um, just mentioned, I think it's really critical to have mentors quite early on in your career. And they don't have to be female, but it could be male or female. So it's really critical to have mentors, to be prepared to reach out to colleagues when you have difficulties and um, to family and, and not feel that you're in it by yourself. So I, th I think that's really critical. Absolutely. Yes. Reach out for those support networks. I yeah. totally agree. Thank you, Anu. Um, I have just had a question come in from one of our viewers, you, Purana, which I'm going to put to you. Um, I'm a young woman. I've just completed a BA at Melbourne University and I'm looking to get into the cyber field. What are the best pathways? What are the biggest challenges associated with switching to cyber security? given the skills required, are so different from what I've just done in my arts degree? It's a good question. So Yeah, it is a great question. And so, look, you can always do a double degree, right? So um, that's completely uh, an option. Um, we've actually got our on, on our cyber website, sorry, some information about the, um, op I guess, the different avenues available through educational institutions and we've actually got a list of all of the universities in Australia and all of the TAFEs in Australia and the courses that they provide so you can actually go to that and and try and navigate your way through um, I guess you, you know partnering your arts degree with X degree what you'll find um, is that not all of them are quite technical so there are a number that are actually they're not even cyber they're actually probably computer engineering and um, so they are they can be quite complementary to your mm. current degree. Um, and I guess the other thing to add is that not all of the jobs that are out there, and we use something called a NICE framework, which categorises 52 jobs within cybersecurity, not all of those 52 jobs are actually technical jobs. Um, a lot of them are actually around uh, providing leadership, providing um, management, and the management can be around, say, marketing and or communications, or even um, a lot of them are how do we how do we unplug or understand or translate the technical elements into normal human language, so that when you are talking to um, I mentioned before businesses, governments, small business, um, the dentist, you know, your parents, you can actually talk to them in a way that's non-cyber speak. So. I think what you'll find um, is that there's going to be more and more jobs available that are actually seeking non-technical cyber skills and your background would be perfect for that. Thank you, Purana. Uh, that was for Eva Van Dyke, that, that question, who posed that question. Valerina, I'm going to uh, go to you now and ask you, in your experience, what is the gender mix in, in environmental policy in Indonesia? And... Um, Perhaps why is that so? We'll wait to hear what your answer is, though, first. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say um, thank you for allowing me to join this uh, panel of experts. Uh, um, and then um, I'm also happy because I'm also uh, an alumni from the Monash University in Australia, uh, mastering in communications and media studies. Um, before I jump to uh, answer your question, Helen, I would also like to maybe add a little bit of my experience. Uh, during my uh, master degrees uh, journey in Australia, uh, I had the same experience as uh, Nana uh, uh, just told us before about you know having to balance everything between being a student and also a mother. So I think um, I'm also supporting the professor's response to these questions about being a woman. It has to be confident and uh, and also um, you also have to believe that you can do it uh, because if you don't have that confidence you will never be able to achieve whatever you dream um, so that's why I just want to add that so I'm very appreciate uh, I really appreciate uh, the struggles and the journey that has been uh, done by Nana and also professors Anu and also the other uh, women experts here in, in the panelists so back to the questions um, as the uh, advisor to the minister uh, of environment. Um, I've been working with a lot of ministers in the uh, previous cabinet. So I've been uh, working as the environmental ambassador since the year 2005. Um, 
And then uh, I'm working with the uh, previous ministers. For example, I'm working with the Minister of Rahmatullah when we, Indonesia, led the UN uh, Climate Change Convention in uh, Bali. And then also working with the Minister of Ahmed Salim, the previous minister as well, uh, as the leaders of the delegates of Indonesia at that time. And then, um, so uh, during that experience, I know that uh, it's there. There has been a different uh, kind of uh, approach in uh, you know approaching this subject of environment uh, between the Ministry of Environment, uh, the one who is uh, already in charge, uh, the previous one, uh, and then with the, the current one, because the current one is a female minister. Um, she has served for her second term at the moment, Minister Siti Nurbaya, and I'm very excited to work with her uh, during my assignment as the uh, advisor to the minister on uh, climate change uh, topic. Um, I think uh, what is different is because she is uh, a female, so uh, she is approaching the problem as a mother. So, so instead of just you know. Uh, producing policies, uh, but she's trying to embrace all the stakeholders using her uh, capability as a mother because she's also a mother and she's uh, also a working woman. So she has this um, certain traits that is different compared to uh, the previous ministers. So I think um, if we see the uh, percentage of the women leaders in the environment in Indonesia, of course, it's still small compared to men or male. But I believe that if uh, we continue uh, this uh, spirit of having more leaders, more ministers or more women ministers in the cabinet in the future, the, the way of the policy making will be different because, uh, because uh, at the moment, for example, uh, we are seeing a lot of students, a lot of young generation are incorporated in that issue because that's the way we're trying to approach at this moment. As a mother, you have to embrace all your children. So right now, uh, it's very happy. Uh, it's it's very um, good to see that all the youngsters are uh, embracing the, the the climate change issues. And then they also involve a lot with the storytellings. And then uh, when I... Um, made the books, for example. Uh, I create a series of books of environmental issues with my daughter because I want her to be uh, involved as well. Uh, it, it helps to uh, engage more young generations in the story because uh, the way my daughter tells the story, uh, it's, it relates with the way children's told the story to other people as well. So uh, I'm very happy that uh, our efforts uh, during these times are gaining a uh, good momentum and hopefully in the future we will have more ministers uh, female ministers uh, especially in the environmental topics absolutely wonderful thank you valerina um, some interesting insights there and i'm going to stay on that point and go to helen brown now and ask you helen why is it important to have women scientists voices heard in public thanks helen um well it's the amazing stories that we've already heard, I think, show how important it is to hear the stories of women and the effort that they have to go to to succeed in their field, the effort they have to go to to be heard, and also that, you know, you do have to step up and out of your comfort zone at some point. You know, you can't leave the job to someone else. If you're passionate about having a career and seeing uh, a diversity of people in a particular industry, then part of that is that you actually have a responsibility to speak up as well. And, and other women really appreciate that. They really latch onto that. And I've seen that in my career as a journalist for uh, 30 years almost. So when I started out um, as a young reporter, which was a, as a rural reporter, so in agriculture, farming and food, which is very male dominated, but I think because I grew up in that environment, um, I learned pretty quick um, to how to have a voice in it and was supported by my parents. So that was fine. One of the things we tried to do in my team uh, was get more women talking about farming and agriculture because you could see they were so connected to the land and so invested in what was happening. But we never heard their voices and they were never really much in leadership positions. So we made an effort to try and speak to women as much as possible. Uh, early on, though, there was huge resistance. Women didn't want to do that. Mm. And the problem is 
if you don't, if your voice as a woman isn't being heard, other women are going to notice that absence and think that's not the field for them. Mm. So it is, it, it's, it's just that, it's not just perception, it's what people see as the reality and that plays out in the media. So that is why it is important um, to have a diversity of voices and views in the media. And if you get that opportunity, you need to take it. Um, there have been plenty of men who get on the media and they don't have much to say, but you see the face and you hear the voice and that gives them some credibility in some way. So, you know, you've just got to get on there and know that you're probably not being asked to give an expert view unless the journalist thinks, hey, you do actually have something worth saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not being asked for no particular reason. Um, they've probably done a bit of research and worked out that you do have something to say. Yes. And it's, it's a really good opportunity to do that. And, you know, I talk about your responsibility um, and I, I don't want to seem harsh and say, you know, you have to do this, but we, we, we kind of, we can't complain about not being heard. Women can't complain about not being heard or seen if they don't have the courage to step up as well. Mm-hmm. And I used to get very frustrated at women who were very strong and clever, who, who wouldn't go. Um, who wouldn't be recorded, who wouldn't do an interview because I knew that the optics of that were that it's just a man's field you know, and that carries through very strongly. Mm-hmm. So that's that has changed, that's definitely changed and it's so heartening during this coronavirus pandemic to see so many female scientists featured mm-hmm. uh, in the media. I know that there could be more but it is good to see that um, because it does encourage uh early career researchers and scientists, students who are wondering what path to take next, I think it does encourage them and show them that there is a role and a place for them in those fields. Mm. Um, And, you know, I would just strongly encourage anyone, as you say, just find your voice. If it's an authentic voice, then um, it's going to be a good voice. Great. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. I'm going to move now to a question for you, Nana, and perhaps Anu might like to comment on this one as well. What role can men play in progressing uh, the gender equality in STEM? So, Nana, perhaps you first and then Anu. Oh, Nana, you need to unmute. Sorry. Yes. Thank you. So, yes, what role can yes, you Yes. So, Indonesia, that's a very uh, important question to raise in this uh, kind of discussion. So, in terms of Indonesia, we know that Indonesia has patriarchal uh, culture uh, where males play uh, predominant roles in al- almost every aspect of life, from politics, social control of economy, control of resources to even moral authority. So I think to uh, make a, a change in leveling field, we need the, the support from men to overcome social cultural barriers. So we need also political support to influence policy that allowing men to thrive in STEM professionals or careers. But in practical levels, um, I think we need male champions to support women in STEM. And most influential ones are support from, as I said before, significant others but it's a partner, a family member uh, in the family, uh, and support from males in the working place or in, in the institution. Um, there, is, there, there are challenges, but of course there, there's also some progresses. Like in Indonesia, we have just established, there's a, a young, young scientist movement in Indonesia currently where we also have a program uh, called Women in Science Ecosystem, where we have male champions uh, for women in STEM to raise awareness of unconscious gender bias in the field. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Anu, did you want to comment on that as well? Um, I think Nana has made some really good points. Mm-hmm. Um, i just add to that and say that I totally agree. I think part of the reason why women are falling behind in their careers a little bit is because they they put too much into the domestic sphere. They, they, put, they do a disproportionate amount of... Um, household chores Mm -hmm. so having a supportive male partner is really really critical um, because we see that the women that are falling behind in their careers are those with children so there's not much difference between males and females who don't have children but 
we see that there's a big difference there. Um, the other thing is, um, yes, absolutely, we need to have male champions. If you just have women-only networks, then what we find is that it doesn't get um, it doesn't get the uh, buy-in that we need from this sector. So I think it's really critical that we bring males into the conversation as well and um, and just make them aware about the unconscious bias that exists. Because sometimes it turns out they don't really understand that it's um, happening out there. Absolutely. Yes, I guess that's the point, isn't it? If it's unconscious, it's um, yeah. it needs to be brought to consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Anu and Nana, for that. And we have had a, another question from one of our viewers, which I'm going to uh, put to put to you. Um, I agree with the statement that women should have self-confidence, is the question. But on the other hand, sometimes in Javanese culture, our mothers don't want their daughters to struggle and they're less likely to ask them to be assertive. I'm wondering if perhaps uh, Valerina or um, perhaps you would like to comment on that one first? Okay. Well, first of all, um, I need to explain that I am, my background is not from uh, Java. So uh, my parents are from Sumatra. So maybe that's a little bit different compared to the uh, um, uh, question. But uh, what I would like to say is, uh, I think it's not uh, about the culture uh, because I also have a friend from Java that also um, um, uh, have a, a supportive parents on uh her uh, to achieve her dream in STEM, for example. But uh, from my uh, personal experience, I would like to say that we, um, in Sumatra, for example, my father always told me this um, specific saying uh, or message in, in, in our culture in Sumatra from Minangkabau. It says, Jan manjandi mantimun pungkwa. That's the local dialect um, or local language. It means that when you live, you have to have a value. Mm -hmm. So that's what my father told me. So even though we're women, uh, we can have value in whatever we do in our life. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, in a professional life, but also in also um, a domestic life. But uh, Back to the questions, uh, I think it depends on the uh, the person itself uh, uh, in how to convince themselves or to convince the parents that they can do uh, uh, do whatever they want in achieving their dream. So I think it's it's it, it goes back to our belief, and then it probably also goes back to the uh, education level uh, because if you have a high uh, literacy, high education level, you usually have that confidence. So I think the homework uh, for our culture, Indonesia, uh, uh, probably to increase the level of education for women, because if they are educated enough, they will have the uh, you know the resources to believe in themselves. So then, uh, in the future, they will have the courage to achieve their dreams even though they have to face challenges from their parents, from the culture. Thank you very much. Yes, and a great goal to um, generally increase the levels of education. I think Purana may have wanted to say something about that as well. So I'll just go to you, Purana. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, thank you, Helen. I was just reflecting on all of the commentary that, that we have been, I guess, discussing and the questions that have been coming out. And I think culture plays a really important part to this conversation. And I don't mean culture in terms of where are we from, because I'm from an Indian background, we've got Indonesian background, we've got mixed backgrounds, my children are Italian and Australian. Um, but it's also the culture of that country and the culture of both the men and the women in that country. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, comments around uh, women have to kind of lean forward, but how do we do that? Um, what if my parents don't kind of let me, my family, the society doesn't kind of allow that to happen? So how can we break those barriers? And I think, you know, there's, um, there's a role also, I think, for um, potentially policy to play. Um, there's a role for communities such as the AIC to be able to play in, in that. And then there's roles of the sector itself to play in that. And I know, for example, from the perspective of the, of the cybersecurity sector, it's, um, it's something that we're absolutely um, 
uh, aware of, we, we recognise it, but then we're stuck on, well, so how do we do the change? How do we make it happen? Do we throw money at it? Because money's not necessarily going to work. We actually need to change the mindset, um, and that's the harder bit. Um, so a great, a great program, actually there's two great programs that I know that are happening. One's actually in the UK where um, a national security um, organisation basically said that we're going to employ 400 girls. That's it. If we're going to recruit anyone, they can only be girls or women. Mm -hmm. um, and that was pretty brave um, and they've managed to kind of meet those targets. So certainly targets and quotas, and I know that's all very kind of um, political, but they, they, they set a destination mm -hmm. and they show commitment and I think that's what's really important. Um, but, but don't let, um, I guess, let's it's not about letting culture get in the way, but it's about how we can work with culture and refine culture and be a part of that voice and change it. Right. Yeah, great. 400 girls. Yeah. Wow. That's that's an amazing thing to do. Yeah. So you're saying really we need to be a little bit radical perhaps to, mm. to change that we're looking for. Um, Nana may like to make a comment about that as well. Yeah. Thank you, Helen. I think it's important that uh, self-belief confidence as Prof. Anno and other uh, panelists have already talked about. So um, I think women has to be uh, agency, have an agency, like put their own success as a, their own responsibility. And uh, and uh, I always believe I, I am a very, I am, I build my own confidence over the years. I wasn't confident in the beginning, but as experience build on, uh, I build my own confidence. And uh, I think that is really important that you have experience, you have mentors. I always emphasize you have mentors that actually become a partner for you to help you shape your careers. So it is important to have those kind of things to support. Thank you, Nana. I think Anu would like to make a question. Just let me yeah. the viewers to post their questions in the um, in the Q&A box and um, then I'll go to you, Anu, to make a comment yep. as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to say that I was actually raised in India, which is, you know, does really poorly on any gender measure that you look at. But in India, we actually have more, like nearly 50-50 in terms of areas like STEM, women's participation. So although there's a lot of, um, you know, Indian culture is also very, very much about mm. women being submissive. But we still have really, really good female role models. And actually, Ireland is quite surprising, but I grew up in India with a female prime minister. It was never, mm -hmm. we were never, we never felt that being a woman would be a barrier to get to any mm -hmm. position. So, um, and we see women scientists in India doing really well. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, yeah, I don't know. Culture is important, but and plays a role, but within certain um, cultures, we also see there is a lot of support for women um, working within that culture too, yeah. Yes. Yeah, a very, very important point. And um, similarly, the statistics in Indonesia show um, a more even participation at yeah. the education level. Um, but then that probably brings me to the next question, which I'll direct to you too, Anu. Um, despite that increase at the education level in schools and university level, we still don't see this reflected in senior academic positions, for example, within the university or senior uh, leadership positions within professions. Why do you think that is? Um, thanks, Helen. Um, it's a good question. And I've reflected on this quite a bit myself. I think one of the problems or rather one of the issues we observe is that um, women tend to, um, in academia, where you require a lot of um, time to be spent in labs or writing papers, um, women tend to spend a lot of time in uh, teaching and service-oriented activities. And they tend to be quite perfectionists there. And then what happens is they have less time to do research. And it's been observed that anecdotally women don't network in terms of research, they don't build networks, they don't publish as many co-authored papers as males do, which is which is quite surprising mm. because you, you think that women naturally are more collaborative. Mm. 
-hmm. But because they're trying to work, do their research in a limited time, um, when you go to a conference, for instance, you see that the woman would present her paper, go back to the hotel room, whereas the males would be in the bar talking to other male colleagues mm -hmm. and then end up writing a paper together. So I think that's one aspect. And the other one, I think, is just a pipeline issue. Because we've in the past seen very few women rising up in um, senior roles in STEM and male-dominated research areas, there are very few women relative to men in the senior roles. So women just feel that there's no role models for them. So I think it's a lack of role models and the fact that women tend to specialize or put more effort into things that are not observed, you know, like research publications are observed. Mm -hmm. But the time you put in service and the time you spend preparing for your teaching-related activities are not, not observed. So, right. yeah, so that, that's one of the problems. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes. And that takes me to, I'm going to go to you, Helen Brown, now. Um, sort of on the same thread, but to ask you about what can women scientists and STEM professionals do to increase their media presence? Because that presumably would also um, help their um, rise within the organisation that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a really interesting point, Anu, I, I'll pick up on that a little bit as well in my answer, because when I was growing up in rural Victoria, my father would take me along to the farmer meetings with him or he'd take me on his business trips and I was often the only woman at those farmer meetings um, and learnt to feel comfortable in that space. So I think your point around women having to make an effort to go where there aren't so many women, perhaps yeah. even be the only one, yeah. is a really important point to make because that is how you learn how the system works basically where the influence is and, um, and how power is transferred. And if you're not in that mix, you're not going to be a part of that, yeah. uh, those more um, higher profile positions yeah. um, that you really um, should aspire to. There's no reason why you shouldn't. Yeah. So that, that was a good learning. And I guess that reminds us that we have to ensure our children um, have those opportunities as well to, um, to, to go into areas where perhaps they're not seen as being a fit so much so um, and then to pick up on that networking thing you know you have it's about making yourself available isn't it mm. it's about being available yeah and part of the 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 media cycle is about that so you know when I started out in media it was pretty busy it was very full-on um, and competitive and that's probably been quadrupled in today's world the resources are less, the time demands are much, much greater, there are, uh, the deadlines are relentless and you don't have a lot of time to try and find people to fill this, the monster as we called it, the monster of time. You've got to fill, keep filling it with information. Mm. So journalists, what they do and media does is they build up lists of people, of experts that they can go to, um, especially if something happens quickly. Yeah. You know, they'll have a contact email, a mobile phone number, They'll have a record of them as to the last time they appeared in the media on that particular platform and they'll look at it and they'll go, right, we haven't spoken to you for four months, let's give you a call and see if you've got anything to say about this issue. Mm. Now, how do you get on those lists? You've got to front up in the first place. You have to make yourself available at some point in your career to a journalist um, and that way, once they get to know you, they're going to put your name in a list that a lot of people have access to within a news organisation. How do you uh, let someone know, perhaps in your organisation or your university or wherever, that you would like to do some, um, be, be called on by the media to offer your expert opinion? Well, I guess you have to work with your communications uh, team within your organisation or department or your university or whatever, your student group, and just say, hey, look, you know, if um, someone wants to comment on this specialist area, then, then I'm able to give that potentially. Mm -hmm. um, here's, my, here's my areas of interest. Here's my best contact number. You've got to be willing to be contacted out of hours as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just put yourself forward that way and see if the media team 
can help you and put you on their list of experts to contact. So I find with universities, you know, often something would come up and you would look at their expert list, their expert contact list, and you would ring one of their media people and it was all very helpful. But you've got to get on there in the first place. And then you start to work out as a journalist who's got particular expertise, how they sound. Um, you know, are they, are they good for interviewing on TV or are they better for radio or are they better for print? You work all this out. But you've got to be on those lists in the first place. And I saw a, a woman economist on TV the other day um, who I interviewed probably 15 years ago and she was one of my go-tos and she's still, you know, fronting up and being an expert commentator on economics and she's really, really good at what she does and she's a strong woman but she's not aggressive. You know, she, she's just great talent and she would have become great talent because she practised it. You know, she went up for that first one and then she got asked to do another one and over the years she's just been practising it and, and is authentic and, and does it really well. So you've just got to start somewhere. You've got to be brave and start somewhere. Hmm. Great, thank you. Valerina, did you want to comment in your work with the ministers? Um, I know that you've brought scientists in to provide advice on the, in, in that work. Um, have you had female scientists? And, and can you speak a little bit about, about that from your perspective? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. So, yes, um, I serve as the advisor to the Minister of Tourism uh, on the Sustainable Tourism Development Project in Indonesia. So one of the program is called Sustainable Tourism Observatory. Uh, we uh, do this program together with the UNWTO, World Tourism Organizations. So uh, this uh, program, basically, we're trying to develop uh, an observatory uh, to uh, to build a sustainable tourism destinations in the specific destinations. Um, so in order to do that, we collaborate with universities. So um, at the moment, we have 10 prioritized uh, destinations for tourism in Indonesia. So we have uh, 10 different uh, universities who are uh, locally uh, 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 working. Uh, and then, then uh, they have to do research on the issues of sustainable tourism. For example, at the moment, um, I think it's very important to incorporate a scientist because, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, you have to be able to, for example, um, uh, keep a very safe distance. So I think it is very important to incorporate scientists, for example, in the destinations area. So then they can count uh, based on their uh, carrying capacity uh, of that destination. So if uh, they have to reduce the amount of uh, visitors, for example, they can uh, do it based on that uh, scientific uh, fact. Uh, so uh, in our program, uh, the Sustainable Tourism Observatory, we uh, also do that kind of research, even though it's not uh, uh, the pandemic era, uh, but we do that uh, in, in order to be able to develop a sustainable tourism destination in Indonesia. So, um, in working with uh, universities, uh, some of the leaders of this project in the destinations are also women. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, one of the leaders um, in the uh, North Sumatran project uh, in Danau Toba uh, prioritized uh, destinations. Um, it was, I mean, it is led by uh, women. She's previously the uh, head of tourism in North Sumatran government, and now she's uh, the head of the uh, tourism um, um, uh, department in uh, University of uh, North Sumatra. And so now she's leading the research for the Sustainable Tourism Observatory in uh, North Sumatra, uh, specifically in the Natoba area. So um, we... Uh, until now, there are 28 sustainable tourism observatories uh, um, acknowledged by the UNWTO, and five of them are in Indonesia. And on one of the uh, acknowledged sustainable tourism observatory is the one in North Sumatra. So uh, we're very happy uh, that uh, recently the World Bank also embraced this program. Uh, they help and sub um, and uh, cooperate with the universities. Uh, and the project uh, is still ongoing until now in order to uh, to help uh, build a better destination in uh, North Sumatra. So um, I'm I'm very excited that uh, uh, we are involving scientists in the tourism 
project, which is something that maybe uh, not heard before, uh, mm. because uh, when when we introduce this concept uh, to the general uh, tourism stakeholders, they're like uh, uh, feeling that this is something new. Uh, so um, in the future, we already uh, have a discussion with the other ministries, uh, for example, the national uh, development ministries that we're going to build more SDOs in the future in order to you know develop uh, uh, more uh, sustainable tourism destinations and also encouraging more uh, tourism departments in universities in local universities to increase their capability in researching in tourism so then in the future you know both uh, departments in tourism and also the education uh, departments mm -hmm. will you know uh, you'll, you'll be developed better in the future so that's i think uh, that's something that that is uh, very new and needs to be continued in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Valerina. And interesting for some of the um, young scientists listening that they might not have imagined a career in tourism, for example. So I think science can take you in all sorts of directions and it's good to remember that. Um, I was just going to switch across to Nana and ask you about role models. There's been a bit, a few um, examples of this has come up in some of the other people's comments, Nana. Um, what role models in, have inspired you as a, as a young scientist? Well, thank you, Helen. Um, I think having a role model and mentors are two important things uh, to, uh, to shape our careers, to help us, uh, to help guide, guiding us in the field. So um, when I was a teen, I was so amazed by Dr. Pratibi Sudarmono. She's the first Indonesian astronaut uh, to land in space. Um, and that was, I was still like in secondary school and, and that was really, really inspiring on how uh, she becomes, uh, 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 um, how, how she show like there is no limit to what you can achieve as a woman or as a young girl. And then um, I, uh, I also want to highlight the importance of uh, having inspiring and engaging teachers in STEM subjects that um, made students interested to pursue study and uh, professions in STEM field. And I had this in my high school years. I have very good teachers in math, in, in chemistry, in, uh, and, and in biology, and that really helped me to understand the subject and become interested to pursue a career in science. Mm -hmm. And uh, also a, a, a role of mentors. I have mentors in the university, in the university that helped me, introduced me to the field of biomedical science, molecular biology. His name is Prof. Rawan Yusuf. And he also the one who helped me transition back to Indonesia after many years in Australia. So this kind of uh, men mentorship or network are needed to help us uh, further our careers. And also uh, I was mentored by Professor Sampot in the last five years, who was actually a professor in Monash, but then moved back to Indonesia to uh, advance science in Indonesia. So they are both my source of inspiration and part of support system professionally. And um, last but not least, I have a role model in my family. So I think uh, uh, having a, a support system in the immediate uh, family is really important. My mother was a, was a very tough and persistent woman, despite married, she married at a very young age and having kids, but she managed to continue her high school and then obtain her bachelor degree which was quite rare at her time. So to me, that's an inspiration. And also she always put like education is really important for both boys and girls. So yes, having uh, role models and mentors really helped me in shaping my career as a scientist, Helen. Thank you, Nana. Important messages coming through about the importance of mothers, I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, I actually have had a question from somebody else who's watching, uh, Sri Wa. Eunice Yuningsi, who's the founder of Girl Share Travel. And it links to, to what you've been talking about, Nana, so I'll, I'll go back to you with this. She says, the biggest problem that I face is attitudes, education is not perceived to be important by women in rural areas. How can we change that? And she's asked a question to both Nana and Helen as well, Helen Brown. So Nana, if you'd like to go first. Thank you. I think that is a big challenge. Uh, Ibu Valerina, I just mentioned, like, we need to change the mindset. And mm -hmm. that, that's a long, long way. Um, it's a very huge challenge for us to change the mindset. But I think um, uh, uh, there is a lot of movement now in Indonesia for uh, uh, to inspire uh, young, uh, young women or also uh, young, uh, younger generations 
there is so-called class inspirasi, kelas berbagi, and including us in the Academy of Science, Academy of Science, Academy Ilmuwan Muda Indonesia. We go to schools, at least go to back to our school, to our high school, to inspire those students. What professionals, STEM professional, for example, that you can have uh, uh, after you graduate uh, from university. So I think it is important to uh, to uh, to engage and motivate young girls. Uh, to uh, and let them know what what kind of professions that are available for you, an array of options uh, to uh, to to have to, that you are able to have in in the future. I think that's important to to have. So inspiring other young girls, inspiring young generations on that for in the field. And I know you do that, Nana. I know you do that with your own nieces. Yes. Um, Helen Brown, did you want to comment from the Australian perspective about rural attitudes to education? Sure. Um, that has changed, but 30, 40 years ago, it was, it was very different. Um, young women in rural areas were really just meant to get married to a farmer and have their children and continue the, the, ensure that the farm continued, basically. Mm-hmm. You might get a bank job. Mm-hmm. to uh, supplement the income or a teacher's job. Uh, but there wasn't really much expectation that you should have an actual career. So I grew up kind of on the cusp of that changing and uh, I didn't go to university until my mid-20s. Um, and that was partly because I wanted to, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of support around doing that. So mm-hmm. it is tough. It, it can be really tough and you're in an environment and you know that you want to go down a particular path. Um, but you've got a, a societal view that makes it very hard for you to move forward. And um, I think it just takes a lot of courage, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do that in your community, just imagine how many others are quietly wishing they could do the same and you're showing them the path, which you don't realise at the time. So um, it's just a case of, you know, it, it will change over time. I agree with Nana on that. It will change over time, but it takes um effort by everyone who sees that as a as a progressive and good thing to do to just work at it um and explain the value of education and and not listen to the people who say you can't do this you know go with your heart and what you know is right for you and just find a a good productive way forward and good luck absolutely great i think um my own mother actually had to leave her job once she married too so things have changed a lot um thankfully um, but Prirana, I think, would like to to make a comment on this question as well. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I just wanted to share an experience that I had in Jakarta in November last year. And um, I was there actually doing a standards presentation, but I also had the opportunity to meet with, um, I guess, the peak body for, for information and technology. Um, so they were an industry association with members, and I met with their board Um, for lunch and I was absolutely blown away because the board comprised um, of a majority of of women and not only were they women, they were young women and they were just sassy and intelligent and they just rocked it and they were great. Um, And this was in November, of course, it was just when Jokowi had regained his seat and um, there was a bit of a reshuffle in government. And um, the other thing that I was absolutely enthralled by was the discussion that was happening and the insights they were sharing about, um, you know, the new new ministers and whether they do a good job or not. And um, it was just exhilarating because I just looked at that group of women thinking they are the future of, of Indonesia. Um, and their day jobs were, of course, with Bukalapa or with Gojek, um, you know, so e-commerce, highly digital organisations. Um, it was brilliant. It was inspiring. And, um, and I, know that that's, uh, I know that that's just a peak, I guess, of what else exists in Indonesia and hopefully across, my, uh, mother, sorry, hopefully across a number of other countries as well. Absolutely, yes. Thank you, Pirana. So uh, we are... Coming towards the end, I do have a final question um, from Selby Tangara to all of the panellists. How can we break the glass ceiling in STEM in your respective fields? So let's start with, uh, start with Nana. Thank you, Helen. I think um, it, is, it is really important to um, introduce the field to the students mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, when, when we 
whoever in our surroundings, an array, as I said, an array of options uh, of careers uh, to have in STEM. And uh, I always um, uh, emphasize on self-belief, confidence, mm -hmm. that uh, nothing can prevent you from achieving your dreams. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. So self-confidence and also how we, we have uh, science and education in the Young Academy uh, to address all these kind of things. Although it's very slow, but I think there is progress. Uh, and we, uh, we are aware of this, like we need to increase the, the balance uh, for uh, women scientists in STEM areas. Thank you. Anu, and very briefly, so we can get through everyone. Anu, next. How can we break the glass ceiling um, in your respect? Yeah. Uh, thank, thanks, Helen. Um, I was going to say that uh, we have this problem in economics as well. Um, the declining pipeline of students um, studying economics, it's gone down from well, 50% to about 25% at the moment in Australia. So what we're doing is we're trying to go to schools and educate girls there to try, you know, try and encourage them to do STEM type of subjects mm -hmm. and economics as well. We're working with the Reserve Bank, with policymakers, um, educating them about exciting careers in these areas. And I think it starts there at schools because that's where they're being conditioned to believe that they can't achieve something. Absolutely. So I think that, that's the way we start, yeah. Excellent initiative. Thank you. Uh, Pirana, how do we break the glass ceiling in your field? Yeah, look, we're getting there. We're breaking it. I just know it. Um, and I can tell because um, a lot of the um, listeners today have already said, how do I kind of, you know, do other subjects? How can I change my career? So we're absolutely getting there. Um, I think hard work, um, and I think we've all said it before, leaning in, holding up your hand, wearing bright jackets, Helen, so that we're recognised. <laughs> I think that's really important too. So that's, that, I think that's how we're going to get there. Excellent. Thank you. Helen Brown? Uh, same, really. Uh, it just means you have to have the courage to hold the course. Mm. And, you know, you're going to be the annoying person who wants to do something different and is seen as upsetting things and, you know, why are you doing that? And why are you making me do the housework and all these sorts of conversations that you're going to have, which are not comfortable. Um, but unfortunately, it isn't the only way forward. You know, you, uh, it's, it's not easy. I don't think any of the panellists on um, this webinar today, it's been heartening to hear that we've all had, you know, struggles in the journey, but the, the payoff is huge. Um, it's it's just such a delight. So keep at it. Um, and know that you have our strength with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Helen. And Valerina, 30 seconds from you. Okay. So uh, I would say that first, we need to make the level of education, especially for women, to be higher. That's our uh, main homework at the moment in order to, you know, give them resources, give them self-confidence, so then they will, you know, be able to break through the gas, uh, the gas ceilings. And the second one is uh, you have to communicate uh, STEMs or uh, uh, professionals uh, or uh, jobs in STEMs in a creative way. For example, for me, we create books, uh, we do campaigns, we go uh, school to school and explain them about the issues of climate change. So for others, maybe they can do different ways, but um, they can also, for example, ask the role models or successful women to visit uh, their specific destinations in order to convince the young women to, you know, uh, be able to uh, encourage themselves uh, to break the glass ceiling. Um, so I, I know that uh, this is a long journey, but I believe uh, just like, uh, you know, a scientist, uh, uh, Marie Curie said that it's a process that needs a long journey, uh, but we need to keep uh, continuing it in order to achieve uh, our objective which is increasing uh, the women uh, in STEM. Fabulous. Thank you, Valerina. And what a lovely note to finish on, a quote from Marie Curie. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to thank all of the panellists. You've really given, uh, provided a lot of inspiring ideas uh, for our young, inspiring scientists who are listening. Um, we have got quite a number of other questions that have come through, so we will try and answer those directly with our listeners if we can. Um, but I'd like to thank you, Anu, uh, Nana, Valerina, Helen and Pirana. Thank you so much. Um, 
just before we finish, I wanted to remind everybody that we do have another event coming up um, next week on Thursday, the 23rd of July. Uh, it is Geopolitics in a COVID World. And we have uh, the Shadow Minister, the Honourable uh, Penny Wong, Foreign Affairs Shadow Minister uh, as part of that. We also have Professor Michael Wesley, who's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne. And we have Dr. Phillips Vermont, uh, who's an AIC Leaders Program alumni, alumnus, and uh, the Executive Director of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, that, uh, that conversation, that webinar next week on Thursday will be moderated by Helen Brown. So um, tune in for that one as well. And thank you for joining us uh, today.